This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is loyal, strong, and true. In the first half, Gordon B. Hinckley shares his address, Stand Up for Truth. Then in the second half, Jeffrey R. Holland speaks on, O Lord, Keep My Rudder True. Well, it's an honor and a rare privilege to speak to this stone-cold, sober gathering of university students. You've done it again. You've made the national news. I was in Oregon on Sunday participating in a conference and read in the paper the Associated Press story of the Princeton Review's Advantage Guide to the Best 310 Colleges. Florida State University came out number one as the, quote, party school, close quote, of the nation. George Washington University came out number two, the University of Florida number three. On the other side of the coin were the top ten stone-cold sober schools. Number one is Deep Springs College in Dyer, Nevada. I know nothing about that school. In fact, I had never before heard of Dyer, Nevada. I took occasion to look it up in my 1965 Rand McNally Atlas. The map showed it to be very near the Nevada-California border, some distance from any large community. The population at the time my atlas was printed was 20 people. I'm sure it has grown considerably if it has a college. I do not know the size of Deep Springs College, but I am confident that it in no way approaches the size of Brigham Young University, which was listed number two. I said to myself, what a significant honor this is. It says, in effect, that BYU really is judged to be the number one large university in terms of sobriety and a no-nonsense attitude on the part of the student body on why they are going to a university. That is, to gain an education to prepare for constructive careers. I followed down the column and discovered that the U.S. Military Academy at West Point followed BYU and that this was followed by the Naval Academy at Annapolis. (laughs) I submit to you that you are in good company, the very best this nation has to offer. The story indicated that a young woman music major at Florida State University, upon hearing of her school's ranking, asked, where did we come in in academics? Number 350? I don't know how many of you were interviewed for this survey. Presumably some of you were. To you who responded, I offer my congratulations. You spoke for this whole vast student body and you spoke in such a way as to make us proud of you. I hope that while others may gain reputation for being stone-cold inebriated, if that's what, quote, party, close quote, denotes, You will be recognized for being stone-cold sober and alert and on top of things. 
This is truly a unique university, as every one of you knows. It is a great institution. We have every confidence in the strong leadership of President Bateman, his associates in the administration, and the faculty. How fortunate you are to be here. I bring you the commendation of the Board of Trustees and the compliments of the entire church. You are a hand-picked group. I only wish that everyone who wanted to come here might have the opportunity. That very many were turned away is a fact with which you are all familiar. I repeat what I've said here before, that a vast amount of the tithing funds of the Church is required to make it possible for you to receive an education at this remarkable institution. How great is your responsibility, how compelling your trust to give your very best effort during the season that you are here. We are all concerned about the time required for the average student to earn a bachelor's degree. If you will shorten that time through careful planning and consistent studies, you will make it possible for more worthy young people to come here, thereby blessing their lives and the lives of others whom they will influence through the years. So much for that. I recently reread a statement given on this campus years ago by Charles H. Malik, then Secretary General of the United Nations. He said, I respect all men, and it is from disrespect for none that I say there are no great leaders in the world today. In fact, greatness itself is laughed to scorn. You should not be great today. You should sink yourself into the herd. You should not be distinguished from the crowd. You should simply be one of the many. The commanding voice is lacking, the voice which speaks little, but which, when it speaks, speaks with compelling moral authority. This kind of voice is not congenial to this age. The age flattens and levels down every distinction into drab uniformity. Respect for the high, the noble, the great, the rare, the specimen that appears once every hundred or every thousand years is gone. Respect at all is gone. If you ask whom and what people do respect, the answer is literally nobody and nothing. This is simply an unrespecting age. It is the age of utter mediocrity. To become a leader today, even a mediocre leader, is a most uphill grade. You are constantly and in every way and from every side pulled down. One wonders who of those living today will be remembered a thousand years from now, the way we remember with such profound respect Plato and Aristotle and Christ and Paul and Augustine and Aquinas. He concludes, if you believe in prayer, my friends, and I know that you do, then pray that God send great leaders, especially great leaders of the Spirit. Close quote. It is in harmony with that profound and sobering statement that I wish to say a few words to you today. You are good, but it is not enough just to be good. You must be good for something. You must contribute good to the world. The world must be a better place for your presence, and the good that is in you must be spread to others.
I do not suppose that any of us here this day will be remembered a thousand years from now. I do not suppose that we will be remembered a century from now. But in this world so filled with problems, so constantly threatened by dark and evil challenges, you can and must rise above mediocrity, above indifference. You can become involved and speak with a strong voice for that which is right. I took these words some years ago from General Mark W. Clark, one of the notable officers of the Second World War. He said, All nations seek it constantly because it is the key to greatness, sometimes to survival, the electric and elusive quality known as leadership. Where does juvenile delinquency begin? In leaderless families. Where do slums fester? In leaderless cities. Which armies falter? Which political parties fail? Poorly led ones. Contrary to the old saying that leaders are born, not made, the art of leading can be taught and it can be mastered. You, my brethren and sisters, are here majoring in math, in chemistry or physics, in law, in English, whatever. This schooling is designed to equip you to earn a living in the society of which you will become a part. But you cannot simply sit in your laboratory or your library and let the world drift along its aimless way. It needs your strength, your courage, your voice in speaking up for those values which can save it. If this university meets the purpose for which it is maintained, then you must leave here not alone with secular knowledge, but even more importantly with a spiritual and moral foundation that will find expression to improve the family, the community, the nation, even the world of which you will be a part. I read to you from the first book of Kings, chapter 2. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and shew thyself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee a man on the throne of Israel. This stone-cold sober institution, this your beloved alma mater, is the place to prepare yourselves not only for your chosen academic discipline, but in a much larger sense and possibly a much more important sense, to be a man or woman who will rise above the mediocrity of his or her surroundings and stand up for what is good and decent and right. We're involved in the same battle that went on before the earth was created. It is a battle between right and wrong, 
between truth and error, between the design of the Almighty and his beloved Son on the one hand and Lucifer the Son of the Morning on the other. Stand up for truth in a world of sophistry. We are in the midst of a political campaign in this nation. As usual, we are being saturated with claims and counterclaims. Anyone who has lived as long as I have has heard again and again the sweet talk that leads to victory but seems never to be realized thereafter. It is imperative that good people, men and women of principle, be involved in the political process. Otherwise, we abdicate power to those whose designs are almost entirely selfish. John Engler, governor of Michigan, recently said, The wisdom of the ages reveals that our moral compass cannot ultimately come from Lansing or from any other state capital, any more than it can come from the nation's capital, or Hollywood, or the United Nations, or some abstract liberal conception of the village. It comes from deep within us. It comes from our character, which is forged in our families and our faith, and tempered in the arena of decision-making and action. I encourage you, my dear young friends, to speak up for moral standards. In a world where filth, sleaze, pornography, and their whole evil brood are sweeping over us as a flood, in the first place, none of us can afford to be partakers of this rubbish. Not one of us, neither I nor any one of you, can become involved in such things as sleazy videotapes, suggestive television programs, debasing movies, sensual magazines, so-called 900 numbers, or the kind of filth that evidently can be picked up now on the Internet. And void them like the plague, for they are a serious and deadly disease. Lend your strength to the crusade against illegal drugs. They're all about us, right here among us. Their use, particularly among youth, has doubled in the last four years. Think of it. Doubled since 1992. Where are we going? Lives are blighted. Careers are destroyed. Even the next generation is injured. In many cases beyond repair, when young people take up drugs and develop an addiction. You can reach out to prevent a foolhardy decision on the part of a boy or girl. Your interest, your caring attitude, and your voice may make the difference between life and death in a very literal sense. Stand up for integrity in your business, in your profession, in your home, in the society of which you're a part. Again, it is not enough that you retreat to your private cloister and pursue only your special private interests. Your strong voice is needed. The weight of your stance may be enough to tip the scales in the direction of truth. What a dismal picture is so often painted of men of greed who violated every canon of honesty to get a little more when they already had more than they knew how to use. There is the picture of a number of failed savings and loan organizations whose destruction was caused by selfish men 
bringing losses to thousands and increased burdens to every taxpayer in the nation. This is an indication of what happens when people will not stand up and speak out against practices totally dishonest and which will lead only to suffering and regret. Stand up for integrity in the home. Many of you are not married, but most of you will be, hopefully. <laughs> Again, you cannot pursue your professional and other pursuits and neglect your domestic affairs. Never forget what President McKay said. No success in life can compensate for failure in the home. Or the words from President Harold B. Lee, the greatest work we will ever do will be within the walls of our own homes. I deal much, so very much, with cases of divorce and requests for cancellation of temple ceilings. It is the most difficult of all the things with which I have to do. Almost without exception, each case involves deception, dishonesty, broken promises, violated covenants, heartbreak, and tragedy. Begin with your own home to preserve the sanctity of your marriage, the eternity of your covenants, and the happiness which comes where there is love and security and trust in the family. Put the comfort and happiness of your companion and your children ahead of your own and reach out with a helping hand to those whose marriages have become troubled. Stand up for loyalty to your associates, to your heritage, your good name, to the church of which you're a part. How marvelous a quality is loyalty. There is no substitute for it. It comes of an inner strength. Said Shakespeare, to thine own self be true, and it shall follow as the day the night. Thou canst not then be false to any man. In this world, almost without exception, we must work together as teams. It is so obvious to all of us that those on the football field or the basketball court must work together with loyalty one to another if they are to win. It is so in life with each of us. We work as teams, and there must be loyalty among us. William Manchester, as a young Marine, fought through the terrible Battle of Okinawa. He was savagely wounded, but lived to return to fight again in the hellish fire of the Shuri Line, where thousands on each side perished. Years later, a grown and mature man and an accomplished writer he returned to Okinawa and walked over its once battle-scarred ridges. On reflection, on those earlier brutish days, he wrote, Men I now knew do not fight for flag or country, for the Marine Corps or glory or any other abstraction. They fight for one another. Any man in combat who lacks comrades who will die for him or for whom he is willing to die is not a man at all. He is truly damned." Close quote. Be loyal. Be loyal to those with whom you work in the battles of life. 
a house divided against itself cannot stand. Stand up for loyalty to your heritage. Each of us here today represents the latest chapter in a long line of generations. Included in those generations are forebears, many of whom made terrible sacrifices for that which we have today. They have left us good names which have been safeguarded through the generations. The name which you carry is a treasured possession. Keep it unsullied. Pass it to the next generation without stain or embarrassment. Stand up for loyalty to those who have gone before you. Be loyal to the church. Stand tall for it. Defend it. Speak no evil against it. It is the work of God. He who ridicules it or defames it offends him whose church it is. It carries the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as a, as a wonderful mother to each of you in whose arms you find shelter, warmth, comfort, and security. Who's on the Lord's side who? Now is the time to show. We ask it fearlessly. Who's on the Lord's side who? You cannot be indifferent to this great cause. You have accepted it. You have entered into sacred covenants. Regardless of what you do in the future with the knowledge you gain from your secular studies, you cannot escape your obligation under the covenant you implicitly made when you were baptized and the covenant which you have renewed each time you have partaken of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You cannot simply take for granted this cause, which is the cause of Christ. You cannot simply stand on the sidelines and watch the play between the forces of good and evil. Said Nephi, They who are not for me are against me, saith the Lord. Wrote John the Revelator, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And so, my beloved brethren and sisters, as you begin this new year in the pursuit of studies to qualify you for your life's work, I urge you with all the capacity that I have to reach out in a duty that stands beyond the requirements of our everyday lives, that is, to stand strong, even to become a leader in speaking up in behalf of those causes which make our civilization shine and which give comfort and peace to our lives. You can be a leader. You must be a leader as a member of this church in those causes for which this church stands. Do not let fear overcome your efforts. For as Paul wrote to Timothy, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear comes not from God, but from the evil one. 
the adversary of all truth would put into your heart a reluctance to make an effort. Cast that fear aside and be valiant in the cause of truth and righteousness and faith. If you now decide that this will become the pattern of your life, you will not have to make that decision again. You will put on the armor of God and raise your voice in defense of truth, whatever the circumstances now and in all the years that lie ahead. May the blessings of heaven attend you. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Loyal, Strong, and True. We've just heard from Gordon B. Hinckley. After the break, we'll return with Jeffrey R. Holland for O Lord, Keep My Rudder True. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Loyal, Strong, and True. Next is Jeffrey R. Holland, president of Brigham Young University at the time of this address, titled, O Lord, Keep My Rudder True. A recent event on our campus helped set the stage for my remarks today. It was covered thoroughly by the press including an excellent editorial published in the Daily Universe. The date was November 16, 1985, just two months ago. We made history. Television covered it. The print media published it. And in the best Clint Eastwood fashion, we made Beano Cook's day. BYU booed its own quarterback. One of America's truly distinguished philosophers, Josiah Royce, wrote, Loyalty is for the loyal man not only a good, but for him the chief among all the moral goods of life, because it furnishes him a personal solution to the hardest of all human problems. The problem, for what do I live? It is loyalty, loyalty to true principles and true people and honorable institutions and worthy ideals. It is loyalty that unifies our purpose in life and defines our morality. Where we have no such loyalties or convictions, no standards against which to measure our acts or their consequences, we're unanchored and adrift. We're driven with the wind and tossed, says the scripture until some other storm or some other problem or some other appetite takes us another direction for an equally short and unstable period of time. The older I get, which isn't old enough yet, the more I believe Professor Royce must have been right. For what do I live is, in a sense, the inquiry every LDS missionary invites his or her investigator to make. If there is honest consideration of that question, then eternal truth has a fighting chance to bless the children of God. And such matters of loyalty and honor are important at BYU. For to make young people capable of honesty, said John Ruskin, is the beginning of education. Sam Johnson said it even better. Integrity without knowledge is weak and useless. 
and knowledge without integrity is dangerous and dreadful. Let me go back to Robbie Bosco. There are a lot of reasons why that booing incident bothered me. First of all, it bothers me that any BYU fan would boo anybody for any reason. If someone can explain to me the Christianity of that, I invite you to do so quickly. Obviously, it bothers me that such an experience would be seared by Mr. Cook into the national memory as the most regrettable moment of the entire collegiate football season. It bothers me that we would do this to a fellow student, a neighbor, a friend, a convert to the Church in this case. Not to mention, of course, that he also led us to two of our greatest years in football history, including two conference championships, two postseason bowl games, a victory in the famed kickoff classic, one undefeated season, and a national championship. It bothers me that a very small handful of individuals could cast a cloud over a very fine game, which, by the way, we went on to win against a team that would end up fifth in the nation. But they also cast something of a cloud over the whole season. And for me, they cast a bit of a cloud over BYU football itself. At the same time, I'm confident that this handful of rabid fans on virtually every other day of the week are probably pretty decent folks who wouldn't think of speaking shamefully to anyone's face but who somehow get caught up or get caught down, as the case may be, in the fever of a game and watch their boorish behavior increase in direct proportion to the anonymity of the crowd and their own safe distance from a blitzing linebacker. Someone once said that no individual snowflake ever felt any responsibility for an avalanche. And maybe that's true in some of the activities on our campus as well. What I wish to ask of you today is to be the kind of person who stands loyally by the principles and the people and the institutions to which you have declared your allegiance and which probably have given you most of the blessings you enjoy. In that sense, what I say here has very little to do with fans or football or Beano Cook, whoever he is. The booing of a fellow human being is probably soon forgotten, except perhaps by the booey. So we apologize to Robbie and all others who have received unchristian treatment at our hands, and I move on to ask a larger question. If every BYU student had exactly the same sense of loyalty I have, what kind of school or church or nation or world would ours be? How much pressure is too much pressure to remain true? How much disappointment is too much disappointment to stand firm? How far is too far to walk with a discouraged friend or a struggling spouse or a troubled child? When the opposition heats up and the going gets tough, how much of what we thought was important to us will we defend? And how much in that inevitable tug and pull of life will we find it convenient to give away? As with so many abstractions that need to be made concrete, our homes and families are good settings for an initial application. Would we, for example, stand by a younger brother or an older sister in times of despair or pain? Would we defend to the death our parents if they really needed our help? Even if our prayers are embarrassingly skimpy, don't we at least pray for the members of our family? 
I assume that those questions are easy to answer because we say something like, well, I love them, or I owe it to them, or they would do the same thing for me. Yet what we so often fail to remember is that we should feel that way about everyone. That family is the true Christian appellation for the entire human race. Have we made the Sunday greeting somewhere in the Kimball Tower so commonplace to Brother Jones and Sister Brown that we forgot why we were saying that in the first place? Has our hasty reference to Father in Heaven grown stale and insignificant? Will we ever widen our circle beyond that already claimed by the Pharisees? who even in their benighted state did not boo other Pharisees. What reward have you? If you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? In matters of loyalty, we all have a long way to go. The late Alvin R. Dyer faced something of this challenge when he was a bishop years ago. He had a member of his ward who said that smoking was the single greatest enjoyment he got out of this life. He said, at night I set my alarm every hour on the hour and wake up to smoke a cigarette. Bishop, I love smoking too much to give it up. A few evenings later, the man's doorbell rang at 10 p.m., and there on the doorstep was Bishop Dyer. Oh, Bishop, what on earth are you doing here at this hour? I'm getting ready to go to bed. I know, said Brother Dyer. I want to see you set your alarm and watch you wake up and smoke. Good heavens, I can't do that in front of you, the man said. Oh, sure you can. Don't don't worry about me. I'll just sit in the corner somewhere and be very quiet. Well, the man invited him in, and they talked about everything Bishop Dyer could conjure up to hold the man's interest. He said, I pursued every idea and conversation I could think of to keep him speaking. I thought he was going to throw me out a couple of times. But shortly after three in the morning, I said, Heavenly days, you've missed five alarms already. Please forgive me. I have ruined your evening's enjoyment. The night is such a disappointment now, you might as well just go to bed and forget the rest of those alarms this once. Then note this language, still quoting Brother Dyer. At that moment, I felt in him a sense of honor. And he looked at me with a peculiar smile and said, All right, Bishop, I will. And he never touched another cigarette for the rest of his life. How would you describe Brother Dyer's loyalty? Was it loyalty to that inactive man or loyalty to the members of his ward generally or loyalty to his office as bishop or loyalty to the word of wisdom? or loyalty to the principle of revelation, or loyalty to the church, or loyalty to God, or, well, you get my point. His Father in heaven asks Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And Cain fires back, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Maybe the answer to that question is, as Professor Chauncey Riddle once said to me, No, Cain, you're not expected to be your brother's keeper, but you are expected to be your brother's brother. Consider for a moment the kind of treachery Cain introduced into the world, the betrayal of family and friends and fellow citizens. 
His legacy is a chilling one, and his colleagues are legion. Dante reserved the innermost circle of hell for this crowd, for those who turn against their own. There he placed Judas, Brutus, and Cassius, the most notorious of traitors, in the three mouths of Satan himself. Revealingly, the poet does not rely on the image of fire for his description of their plight. The souls of traitors are held fast in a lake of ice. Clearly, the worst of sins against one's brother or sister are those of the frozen heart. Those who are disloyal to others have chosen a life isolated and immobile, a life, in effect, hostile to life, for which the only adequate image is a sunless waste of ice. Well, if we're not called upon to defend a member of the family quite as openly as Cain was, perhaps we'll have opportunities to defend the Church. After four years of missionary service in the Hawaiian Islands, begun at age 15, by the way, young Joseph F. Smith returned to the mainland and began making his way back to the Salt Lake Valley. But these were difficult times. Feelings toward the Latter-day Saints were running very high. The terrible experience at Mountain Meadow was fresh in the minds of many people. Polygamy had become a national political issue. And at that very hour, Albert Sidney Johnston's army was on its way to the Utah Territory under orders from the President of the United States. Less disciplined than the U.S. Army were many frontiersmen scattered abroad who vowed openly they would murder every Mormon anywhere they could be found. It was back into that world that 19-year-old Joseph F. Smith drove his team and wagon. One evening, the little company with which he traveled had barely made camp before a company of roughnecks riding up on horseback cursed and swore and threatened to kill. Some of the older men, when they heard the riders coming, had gone down into the brush by the creek, waiting out of sight for the band to pass. But young Joseph had been out at a distance from the camp gathering wood for the fire, and he was not aware of the potential problem. With the openness of youth, he walked back toward the camp, only to realize too late the difficult circumstance he now faced almost totally alone. His first thought was to drop the wood and run toward the creek, seeking shelter in the trees in his flight. Then the thought came to him, Why should I run from my faith? And with that compelling sense of loyalty firmly in his mind, he continued to carry his armful of wood to the edge of the fire. As he was about to deposit his load, one of the ruffians, pistol cocked and pointed squarely at the young man's head, cursed as only a drunken rascal can, and demanded in a loud, angry voice, I'm a killer of Mormons, boy. Are you a Mormon? And without a moment of hesitation or a blink of his eye, Joseph F. Smith looked at that man. Now he, Joseph, scarcely old enough to be entering the MTC, and answered, Yes, siree. Died in the wool. True blue through and through. The answer was given so boldly and without any sign of fear that it completely disarmed this belligerent man. In his bewilderment, he put down his pistol, grasped the young missionary by the hand, and said, Well, you are the blankety-blankest, bravest man I ever saw. Shake, young fellow. I'm glad to see a lad that stands up for his convictions. Years later, while serving as the president of the Church, that same Joseph F. Smith said that he truly expected 
to take at point-blank range the full charge from the barrel of that man's pistol. But he also said that after his initial inclination to run, it never again entered his mind to do anything but stand up for his belief and to face the death that appeared to be the inevitable result of such conviction. Montaigne's ancient cry of the storm-tossed sailor comes to mind. O Lord, thou shalt save me if thou please. If not, thou shalt lose me. Yet, Lord, will I keep my rudder true. But of course it's not enough just to be loyal to any cause. What carried 19-year-old Joseph F. Smith was his answer to the question, For what do I live? It was for gospel truth that he stood and for which he was willing to die. Brigham Young certainly had opportunities to hold a steady course, particularly in those early and difficult years at the side of the Prophet Joseph Smith. While the First Presidency was away from Kirtland, attempting to stabilize the difficult financial circumstances they faced in the winter of 1836 and 37, a council was called by those who were opposed to Joseph Smith continuing in office as prophet and president of the Church. Brigham Young said, I rose up in a plain and forcible manner and told them that Joseph was a prophet and that I knew it and that they might rail and slander him as much as they pleased. They could not destroy the appointment of a prophet of God. They could only destroy their own authority, cut the thread that bound them to the prophet and to God, and sink themselves to hell. Close quote. Sounds like Brigham Young. <laughs> Some of those present reacted violently toward Brigham. One Jacob Bump fancied himself a pugilist. He leaped to his feet, twisting and turning, and shouted, How can I keep my hands off that man? Lay them on, responded Brigham, if it'll give you any relief. But the man didn't lay them on. A few nights later, Brigham heard a man running through the Kirtland streets at midnight, shouting loudly and denouncing the prophet Joseph. Even at that hour, Brigham jumped out of bed, went into the street, and, quote, I jerked the man round and assured him that if he did not stop his noise and let the people enjoy their sleep, that I would cowhide him on the spot. For we had the Lord's prophet here, and we did not want the devil's prophet yelling up and down these streets. Well, those were days of genuine crisis, he reported, when earth and hell seemed leagued to overthrow the prophet and the church of God. The knees of many of the strongest men in the church faltered, he wrote. But Brigham Young did not falter. And yet before that year was over, his own life was in jeopardy for just such loyalty. On December 22nd, he said, I had to leave to save my life. I left Kirtland in consequence of the fury of the mob and the spirit that prevailed in the apostates, who had threatened to destroy me because I would proclaim publicly and privately that I knew by the power of the Holy Ghost that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. And what of Joseph Smith himself? Even as he was being dragged away from his wife and his children one more time, he said, I'm exposed to far greater danger from traitors among ourselves than from enemies without. All the enemies upon the face of the earth may roar and exert all their power to bring about my death, but they can accomplish nothing unless some who are among us and enjoy our society bring their united vengeance upon our heads." Close quote. Well, 
bring their united vengeance, they did. Does a prophet of God deserve that from his friends? What does one have a right to expect from those who, quote, enjoy our society, close quote? Remember that Macbeth's crime against his king is all the more treacherous because Duncan is a guest in Macbeth's house. Is it possible that each of us who claims the privileges and benefits of the kingdom of God will have our own fiery furnace to pass through in which our loyalty is purified as dramatically as it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is there some kind of battleground out there yet ahead of us, some kind of moral Kirtland or metaphysical Carthage that will yet give us our chance to stand up and be counted? Like the 2,000 stripling warriors of whom it was said, they were true at all times in whatsoever thing they were entrusted. With so much that so many have loyally given to provide us with what we have, perhaps you can imagine my disappointment when from time to time a few who accept the university's opportunity and the church's significant financial contribution then violate those standards of behavior and propriety and integrity to which each has voluntarily agreed. And lest anyone be mistaken, please be assured that I am not speaking just now of crowd behavior at a ball game. I speak of a few clubs and club members and others who brag of drinking beer and of partying like would-be prostitutes and then seem absolutely amazed that they and their groups are in terminal jeopardy at this university. I speak of returned missionaries who violate temple covenants, of a faculty member who violates the tender testimony of a youth, of thieves on a campus which now must post warning signs in, quote, high theft areas, close quote, that are a disgrace to everything BYU stands for. I speak of off-campus housing violations that see flagrant abuse of our moral standards where neither those guilty nor their roommates display enough integrity to make a wrong circumstance right. Though these may not be committed on the field of battle nor result in the death of a famous figure, they seem to me nevertheless villainy and treachery indeed, dishonesty of a terribly destructive kind. Carl G. Mazur, the first president of this university, once wrote, My young friends, I've been asked what I mean by the word honor. I will tell you. Place me behind prison walls, walls of stone ever so high, ever so thick, reaching ever so far into the ground. There is a possibility that in some way or another I may be able to escape. But stand me on the floor and draw a chalk line around me and have me give my word of honor never to cross it. Can I get out of that circle? No, not ever. I would die first. At the start of a new calendar year, and the beginning of another important academic semester, may I invite you to examine your soul. I invite you to look deeply within your habits and inclinations and to measure your loyalties against the divine standard of our Savior Jesus Christ. How prepared are you for the difficult things you may yet face in acquiring an education or serving a mission or raising a family or defending your beliefs? 
as preparation for the assault that will yet be made upon your character and your convictions? Is it hoping too much to see you here at BYU cherish clear language and clean entertainment and hard work and disciplined behavior? If we were this very hour in some fictional foxhole somewhere against an enemy who put our eternal lives at risk, would I be safe in your hands? Would you be safe in mine? More than 30 years ago, about 15 LDS soldiers crowded into a frontline bunker in Korea to hold a Sunday service. They used their canteen cups and sea ration crackers to bless and partake of the sacrament. And then they held a testimony meeting. One young man introduced himself simply as Sergeant Stewart from Idaho. He was a short, small man, about five feet five inches tall, and weighed about 150 pounds. His great ambition had been to become a good athlete, but coaches considered him too small for most team sports. So he concentrated on individual competition and had gained some success as a wrestler and as a distance runner. Sergeant Stewart related to his 14 battle-weary brethren an experience he had just had with his company commander, a giant of a man named Lieutenant Jackson, who was six feet seven inches tall and weighed 245 pounds, an outstanding college athlete. The sergeant spoke of him in glowing, loving terms. He spoke of him as a tremendous officer and a Christian gentleman, inspiring those who were fortunate enough to serve under his command. Shortly before the church service in which they now found themselves, Sergeant Stewart had been assigned to a patrol under the direction of Lieutenant Jackson. As they moved down near the base of a hill they held, they were ambushed by enemy fire. The lieutenant had, out in front was riddled by automatic small arms fire. As he fell, he managed to drag himself to the shelter of a rock, while the rest of the patrol scrambled up the hill to regroup. Since he was now second in command, responsibility fell upon Sergeant Stewart. He sent the largest and seemingly strongest man down the hill to recover the lieutenant, while others provided him cover. The man was gone for a long while, only to return and report that he could not budge the wounded officer. He was much, much too heavy. The men then started grumbling about getting out of there before somebody else got hit. And then someone was heard to say, Let's forget about the lieutenant. After all, he's just a nigger. At that point, Sergeant Stewart's temper flared, and he stood up to his full 65-inch stature, and he said, I do not care if he's black or green or orange. We are not leaving without him. He would never have left without you. And then he headed down the hill alone. When he reached the lieutenant, the officer was weak from loss of blood. Jackson thanked the sergeant for his loyalty but assured him that it was a hopeless cause, that he should save himself, for he was too heavy and too weak to get back to an aid station in time. It was then that Sergeant Stewart took off his helmet, knelt by his fallen leader, and said a prayer something like this. Dear God, I need strength, far beyond the capacity of my physical body. A great man, thy son, who lies critically wounded here beside me, must have medical attention soon. I need the power to carry him up this hill to an aid station where he can receive the treatment to preserve his life. I know, Father, 
that thou hast promised the strength of ten to him whose heart is pure. I feel that I can qualify. Please, dear Lord, grant us this blessing. Then he thanked his Father in heaven for the power of prayer and the privilege of holding the holy priesthood. He put on his helmet, reached down, picked up his fallen friend, cradled him over his shoulders, and carried him back up that hill to safety. Someone else ascended a difficult hill once with us cradled carefully on his shoulders. But as Christ moved closer and closer to Calvary, his defenders became fewer and fewer. As the pressure mounted and the troubles increased, he said, There are some of you that believe not. John records, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Later, the Roman soldiers and the chief priests came to capture him. A great multitude with swords and staves, Matthew says. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Close quote. Enter Judas with the calculated kiss of betrayal. We can't know exactly what Judas was thinking, nor why he chose the path that he did. Perhaps he didn't think it would end that way. As William F. May has said, one who is disloyal may not have intended malice. He may even be convinced that he accomplishes a certain good by his action. In these cases, it is well to be reminded that some kinds of betrayal have a way of producing results far beyond our control, a sequence more savage than we intended. I take a certain stand or make a certain speech toward one, only wanting to see him cut down to size. Unfortunately, I may live to see him cut into ribbons. Then Judas, who had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. Precisely because everything has been placed beyond the traitor's reach, the sense of the irreversibility of it all is overwhelming. There is nothing left to be done. And Judas hangs himself, perhaps as an act of atonement, but also perhaps because no act of atonement from Judas is any longer possible. Yet it is also here in this hour, in absolute and utter loneliness, that loyalty to principle and love for one's brothers and sisters reaches its most exalted and eternal manifestation sweating great drops of blood from every pore and pleading that the cup might pass, yet Jesus remains true, 
submitting his will to that of his father and his determination to do the work of the kingdom. Moments later, with taunts and spit and scorn and jeers and spikes rending his perfect flesh, principle triumphs over both passion and pain as the saving sibling of us all prays for his brothers and sisters. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At this crucial hour in your life, I urge you to give deep loyalty to the highest cause in all eternity, those contained in the life and mission and message of the only begotten Son of God. If we can remain true there, with an eye single to that standard, all our other loyalties will fall naturally into place. Inasmuch as we do not sing at the close of these devotionals, perhaps you'll forgive me if I quote two verses from two hymns before our benediction. To all who wish to know of heaven's determination to stand by them in such difficult times, we sing, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot, desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, shall endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Loyal, Strong, and True with thoughts from Gordon B. Hinckley and Jeffrey R. Holland. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.